Chapter 22 of Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Mazzocchi. Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future by Cicely Hamilton. Chapter 22. With years and rough husbandry, the resources of the tribe were augmented, and it emerged from its first starved misery. More land was brought under cultivation, and, as tillage improved and better crops were raised, the little community was less dependent on the haphazard luck of its fishing and snaring, and lived further from the line of utter want. While, save in bad seasons, the intertribal raiding that was caused by sheer starvation was less frequent. Even so, Strife was frequent enough, small intermittent feud that flared now and again into savagery, the desire of a growing community to extend its hunting grounds at the expense of a neighbor meant, almost inevitably, appeal to the right of the strongest. Other quarrels had their origin in the border inroads and reprisals of poachers or a barbaric setting of the eternal story that was old when Helen launched a thousand ships. With husbandry, even rough husbandry, came the small beginnings of commerce, the barter and exchange of one man's superfluities for the produce of another man's fields. Cold and nakedness stimulated ingenuity in the matter of clothing, even in a society whose original members had in large part been bred to depend in all things on the aid of the machine and to earn a livelihood by the performance of one action only, the tending of one lathe, the accomplishment of one stereotyped mechanical process. Outcasts of civilization flung into the world of savagery, they had in the beginning none of the adaptability and none of the resources of the savage, knew nothing of the properties of unfamiliar plants, knew neither what to weave nor how to weave it, and often, from sheer lack of understanding, starved and shivered in the midst of plenty. It was not till they had suffered long and intolerably that they learned to clothe themselves from such material as their new world afforded to cure skins of animals and stitch them together into garments. In the first years of ruin, only rat skins were plentiful. But as time went on, rabbits, cats, and wild dogs multiplied and, spreading through the countryside, were trapped and hunted for their flesh and the warmth of their skins. The dogs, as they bred, reverted to a mongrel and wolf-like type, which, in summer, preyed largely on vermin. In winter, when scarcity of food made them bold, they prowled in packs, were a danger to the solitary and a legendary terror to children. In the beginning, the village was a straggle of rude huts, the tribesmen building how and where they would. Later, it took shape within its first wall and was roughly circular, enclosed by a fence of stake and thornbush. The raising of the fence was a sign and result of the beginning of primitive competition in armament. It was the knowledge that one village had fortified itself that set others to the driving in of stakes. One November evening, Theodore, trudging in with his catch, saw a group round the headsman's fire. The center of interest, a youth who had returned from poaching on other men's land and brought back news of their doings. His trespassing had taken him within sight of the neighboring village, which lately was a cluster of huts, like their own, and now was surrounded by a wall, a stockade fully the height of a man, with only one gap for a gate. 
the poacher's news was discussed with uneasy interest. The fortified tribe, in point of numbers, was already stronger than its rival. If it added this new advantage to its numbers, what was there to prevent it from raiding and robbing as it would? Having raided and robbed, it could shelter behind its defenses, beat off attack, make sorties, and master the countryside. Its security meant the insecurity of others, the dependence of others on its goodwill and neighborly honesty. The issue was as plain to the handful of tribesmen as to old-time nations competing in battleships, aeroplanes, and guns, and the suspicions muttered round the headsman's fire were the raw material of arguments once familiar in the councils of emperors. In the end, as a result of uneasy discussion, Theodore and another were dispatched to spy out the new menace, to get as near as they might to the wall, ascertain its strength and the method of its building, and with their return from a night expedition, there was more consultation and a hurried planning of defenses. Before winter was over, the haphazard settlement was a compound, a walled town in embryo, within the narrow limits of a circle, small enough for a handful of men to defend. All huts were crowded, all provisions stored, all animals driven at sunset, so that, in case of night attack, no man could be cut off and the strength of the tribe be at hand to resist the assailants. With waste, healthy miles stretching out on either side, the village itself was an evil-smelling huddle of cabins, since a short stretch of wall was easier to defend than long. Men and beasts were crowded together in a foulness that made for security. In times of feud, and times of feud were seldom distant, stones were heaped beside the barrier, in readiness to serve as missiles. Watch and ward was kept turn and turn by the able-bodied, and naturally, inevitably, and almost unconsciously, there was evolved a system of military discipline, of penalty for mutiny and cowardice. As in every social system from the beginning of time, the community was welded to a conscious whole, not by the love its members bore to each other, but by hatred and fear of the outsider. It was the enemy, the urgent common need to be saved from him, that made of man a comrade and a citizen. The peril from outside was the natural antidote to everyday hatreds, and the ceaseless bickerings of close neighbors. The instinctive politics of a squalid village were in miniature the policy of vanished nations, and untraditioned little headmen, like dead and gone kings, quelled internal feuds by diverting attention to the danger that threatened from abroad. The foundations of community life in the new world, like the foundations of community life in the old, were laid in the selfishness of fear, but for all its base origin, the life of the community imposed upon its members the essential virtues of the soldier and citizen, a measure of discipline and sacrifice. From these, in time, would grow loyalty and pride in sacrifice. The enclosure of ramshackle huts and pens was breaking its savages to achievements undreamed of and virtues as yet beyond their ken. The blind, stubborn instincts that created Babylon created London and Rome and destroyed them, were laying well and truly in a mud-walled compound the foundations of cities which should rise, flourish, perish in the stead of London and of Rome. Outside the little fortress, with its noisome huddle of sheds and shelters, lay a belt of plowed land, of patches scraped and sown, where the women worked by the side of their men and worked alone when their men were gone hunting or fishing. One or two members of the tribe who were countrymen born 
were its saviors in its first years of leanness, imparting their knowledge of soil and seed to their unskilled comrades bred in towns. And by slow degrees, as the lesson was learned, the belt of tilled ground grew wider and more fertile, the little community more prosperous. As families grew and the tribes settled down, the makeshift shelters of wood and moss were succeeded by stronger and better-built cabins. By the time that her second child was born, Ada was established in a weatherproof hut, a mud-walled building, roofed with dried grass and with a floor of earth beaten hard. In its early years, it possessed a glazed window, a pane which Theodore had found whole in a crumbling house, and set immovably in an aperture cut in his wall. But as years went on, unbroken glass was hard to come by, and there came a day when the window aperture, no longer glazed, was plastered up to keep out the weather. Long before he set about the building of his cabin, Theodore had brought a strip of ground under cultivation, sown a patch of potatoes and straggling beans, which in time expanded to a field. His life henceforth was largely the anxious life of the seasons, the sowing and tending and reaping of his crop, the struggle with the soil and the barrenness thereof, the ceaseless war against vermin. He ended rich as the men of his time counted riches, the possessor of goats, the owner of land which other men envied him, the father of sons who could till it. The new world gave him what it had to give, and gradually, with the passing of years, the hope of life civilized died in him, and he ceased to strain his eyes at the distance. It was slowly, very slowly, that hope died in him, but there came a day when, searching the skyline as his habit was, it dawned on his mind that he saw it automatically. It was habit only that made him lift his eyes to the horizon. He expected nothing when he shaded his eyes and looked this way and that. His belief in a world that was lettered and civilized had vanished. If that world yet existed, remote and apart, of a surety it was not for him, who perhaps was no longer capable of existence lettered and civilized. And if he himself could be broken to its decencies, what place had his children, his young barbarians, in an ordered atmosphere like that of his impossible youth? They belonged to their world, to its squalor, its dirt, its rude ignorance, as it might be, he also belonged. At the thought, he knelt and stared into the water, taking stock of the image it reflected and coming face to face with himself. His body and habits had adapted themselves to their surroundings, his mind to the outlook of his world, to his daily, yearly struggle with the soil and vermin and his fellows. His relations with his fellows, with women, with himself, were not those of humanity civilized. It was nothing to him to go foul and unwashed or to clench his fist against his wife. Could he live the life he had been born and bred to of cleanliness, self-control, and courtesy? Or had he been stripped of the decencies which go to make civilized man? He covered his face with his broken-nailed fingers and strove with God and his own soul that he might not fall utterly to ruin with his world, that some remnant might remain of his heritage. From the day when he saw himself for what he was and resigned all hope of the world of his youth, it seemed to him that he lived two divergent lives, one absorbed perforce in his digging and snaring, in the daily struggle for the daily wants of his household, the other in his hours of summer rest, in the long, dark winter evenings, an inward life of brooding, 
that concerned itself only with the past. His memories became to him a species of cult, a secret ceremonial and a rite. That which had been, so he fancied, was not altogether waste, not altogether dead, so long as one man thought of it with reverence. When the mood took him, he would sit for long hours with his chin on his hand, staring at the fire while the children wondered at his silence, and Ada, wearied of talking to deaf ears, flung off to gossip with the neighbors. She, before she was thirty, was a haggard slattern of a woman, pitiable by reason of her discontent, and looking far older than her years. Childbearing aged her, and the fieldwork she hated, the bent-back drudgery she tried in vain to shirk and to which she brought no shred of understanding. Even more she was aged by the weary desire that sulked in the corners of her mouth. Before she lost her comeliness, she had more than once sought distraction from her dullness and clumsy flirtation, which perhaps was no more than silly ogling and nudging and perhaps led to actual unfaithfulness. Theodore, not greatly interested in his wife's doings, ignored the danger to his household peace until it was forcibly thrust upon his notice by a jealous spitfire who cursed Ada for running after other women's husbands and proceeded to tear out her hair. Ada's snuffling protestations when the spitfire was pulled off did not savor of injured innocence. He judged her guilty, at least in thought, cuffed her soundly, and from that time kept his eye on her. He was not, as she liked to think, jealous salving her bruises with the comforting balm that two males were disputing the possession of her body. What stirred him to wrath fundamentally was his outraged sense of property in Ada, his woman, and the possibility that her lightness might entail on him the labor of supporting another man's child. The intrigue, if intrigue it were, ended on the day of the cuffing and the hair-pulling. Her Lothario, awed by his spitfire or unwilling to tackle an outraged husband, avoided her company from that day forth, and Ada sank back to domesticity. She, too, in the end, accepted the loss of the world that had made her what she was, ceased to search the horizon and strain her eyes for the deliverer, whereupon, having nothing to aim at or hope for, she lapsed into slovenly neglect of her home, alternating hours of clack and gossip with fits of sullen complaining at the daily misery of existence. Had destiny realized the dreams of her youth and set her to live out her married life in a shoddy little villa with bamboo furniture, she might have made a tolerable mother. She would at least have taken pride in the looks of her children, have dressed them with interest as she dressed herself, and tied up their hair with satin bows. Being what she was, she could take no pride in ragamuffins who ran half the year naked. She could see no beauty, even, in straight, agile limbs which were meant to be encased in reach-me-down suits or cheap costumes of cotton velveteen. Thus her naked little ragamuffins, those of them that lived, were apt to be dirtier, less cared for, than the run of the dirty village youngsters. Theodore, in whom the instinct of fatherhood was strong, was sometimes roused to wrath by her stupid mishandling of her children, but on the whole he was patient with her knowing it useless to be otherwise. He beat her as seldom as possible, and she was looked on by her neighbors as a woman kindly handled and unduly blessed in her husband. To the end, she remained what she had always been, essentially a parasite, a minor product of civilization, machine-bred and crowd-developed, 
bewildered by a life not lived in crowds and not subject to the laws of the machine. To the end, all nature was alien and hateful to her, raw life that she turned from with disgust. In her last illness, her mind, when it wandered, strayed back into the world where she belonged. Theodore, an hour before she died, heard her muttering of last bank holiday. She died at the end of a long, hard winter, during which she had failed and complained unceasingly, sat huddled to the fire and grown weaker, creeping at last to her straw in the corner and forgetting in delirium the meaningless life she had shared with her husband and children. Death smoothed out the lines in her sullen face. It was peaceful, almost comely, when Theodore looked his last on it, and wondered oddly if among the many mansions were some cockney paradise of noise and jostle where his wife had found her heart's desire. Of the four or five children she had brought into the world, but two were living on the day of her death, her eldest born and a youngster at the crawling stage, but the care of even two children was a burdensome matter for a man unaided, and it was esteemed natural and no insult to the dead that Theodore should take another wife as speedily as might be, in the course not of months but of weeks. He found a woman to suit his needs without going further than his own tribe, a woman left widowed a year or two before, who was glad enough to accept the offer of a better living than she could hope to make by her own scratching of a rod or two of earth and the uncertain charity of neighbors. The proposal of marriage made in stolid fashion was accepted as a matter of course, and that night Theodore stared through the fire into a room in Westminster where a girl in a yellow dress made music, and a young man listened from the corner of a sofa with a cigarette, unlit, between his fingers. He was dreaming at a table with silver and branching yellow roses when his son nudged him that supper was ready, and he dipped his hand into a greasy bowl for the meat. The wedding followed swiftly on the heels of betrothal and was celebrated in the manner already compulsory and established by a public promise made solemnly before the headman, by a clasping of hands and a ceremony of religious blessing. This last was molded, like all tribal ceremonies, on remembered formulae and ritual, and the tradition that a wedding should be accompanied by much eating and general merrymaking was also faithfully observed. The new wife, if not overcomely or intelligent, was a sturdy young woman who had been broken to the duties required of her, and Theodore's home, under its second mistress, was better tended and more comfortable than in the days of her sluttish predecessor. He had married her simply as a matter of business, that she might help in his fieldwork, cook his food, look after his children, and satisfy his animal desire. And on the whole, he had no reason to complain of the bargain he had made. She was a younger woman than Ada by some years, had been only a slip of a girl at the time of the ruin, and because of her youth had adapted herself more readily than most of her elders to a world in the making and untraditioned methods of living. Her husband found life easier for the help of a pair of sturdy arms and pleasanter for lack of Ada's grumbling. She brought more than herself to Theodore's household, a child by her first husband, and as time went on, she bore him other children of his own. End of chapter 22